Well, thanks very much, and it's it's really nice to be here again. Um, I was here, oh, it was a few months ago now, but it's a real blessing to be back um, and get to preach the word of God. Um, this passage, well, it's quite, it's a fairly well known passage, isn't it? Um, James two, faith and works. How does it? fit together, um, it's been the subject of controversy in the past um, and so it's, it's a blessing to get to preach it. Um, at one level I think the logic of the passage is quite simple and yet it's a very confronting passage um, to read. Um, I feel ill-equipped to preach it because it is so confronting because it's posing the idea that someone could claim to have faith and yet not have faith. That someone could claim to be a Christian and not be a Christian. Uh, That someone could believe the truths of Christianity and say, yes, God is one and, and I believe and they could spout off great matters of doctrine and have studied in theology and all these things and yet not be saved. Um, it doesn't fit our culture to ever question something like that and yet this passage, it sort of does. And it hits me with this personally with a bit of weight because I'm at the very end of a Bachelor of Theology. And so I come in and go, it'll say to me, well, um, you can get, Sam, all the good marks you want and you can have studied all the theology you want and you can have done all these things and not and still not be saved and still not have gotten the main point. And so um, it is a hardcore passage. Uh, it's a hard one to, well, it, it comes with a lot of conviction. That, that, and so that's what James is trying to deal with. He's trying to deal with, does our, does our deeds match up with our faith? Does our belief match up with behaviour? Does our conduct match up with our convictions? Um, and so the problem that James is dealing with is there is a disconnect with the church that he's writing to. They're not matching up. They're saying they believe one thing, they're behaving in a completely different way and he's going to say, well he's going to pose the question, are you really saved if that's the case? Um, and we, can, we sit here in this room you know, almost 2,000 years later and... Um, we can do with this word if you look at the church at large um, you know we, we struggle with the same thing does, does our de- we can ask the same questions of ourselves are our actions matching up with what we believe about God and about the gospel and about this book um, and I don't have statistics um, heard there's statistics that show that the Christian, the church is often its morality is not so different to the world um, but I've got a lot of anecdotal evidence from a life in the church and I know that so often I've got friends who I grew up in the church with and their parents have divorced now from, because of infidelity um, I've got friends who I grew up with and they had no problems with the idea that I'll be drunk as anything on Saturday and I'll sing songs to the Lord on Sunday morning. Um, and I've been to enough youth groups and talked to enough youth pastors to know this isn't a thing of the past, that James could just be writing to, to us today and say it's a relevant word um, even though it is a very confronting word. Um, often we think, in, we think in terms of... you know. 
when we become Christians and we want to become disciples of Jesus, there's sort of two ways that I think it sort of works. You know, that the one way we want to be like Christians, so we need to cut off evil, we need to cut off sin in our lives, and often we get defined by what we don't do. So the Christian, we don't do this, we don't do that. We're against these sorts of things. But it also goes the other way. I think James pushes us towards the other way and goes, it actually does things. You know, the Christian puts his faith into action, that we're people of action and we do things. We don't just not do some things, which is true. We actually go ahead and, and, we, and we, when we act on our faith. Uh, but it's not easy because in our culture now, I think we get mixed messages what our culture really wants from us. Um, I'll explain what I mean. Like Christians are often um, criticise for being hypocrites, saying, well, you believe this and I see you not acting like this. Okay? And we get called hypocrites. At the same time, I think now it's becoming more and more, the Christians being told, keep your faith private. It's okay for you to believe whatever you want to believe, but just keep it to yourself. I mean, it's cool for you and what's cool for you is cool for you, but just don't try and throw it around and try to get people to come in. Well, they're sort of two different messages, aren't they? Don't be hypocrites and keep your faith to yourself. Because if we really believe in what we believe, we can't keep it to ourselves. Although faith is personal, it is never, ever private. Um, I run a... a, a, I work for Youth Dimension, so you'll be familiar with it because of Steve, but... Um, we run schools programs, evangelistic schools programs um, in a lot of state schools and one of the ones I go to, um, one of its campuses, the, the, the te- a teacher has been spying on us, <laughs> and um, a sceptical teacher and apparently he's, he, he's been sitting in the room next to us listening into what we've been saying to the kids in our room um, and he's even sent in students as spies to try and Understand. And so he re- anyway, he got all this information, wrote an article on crikey.com. I don't know, I wasn't familiar with it, but apparently it's fairly well read. Um, and he wrote this about us. He said, most of us, I think he captures the spirit of the age, which says, just keep it to yourself. He says, most of us are accustomed to proselytizers, evangelists, lurking in public spaces or appearing unannounced on our doorstep in the hope of snagging dispirited souls and we put up with them only because we can walk away and slam the door shut on them. Our tolerance, however, ought to end at the public school gate, particularly when church groups use sweets and saccharine smiles to lure 13-year-olds into classrooms that are out of earshot of teaching staff, as has been the case for several years in the state school I teach at. It's a little bit offensive. <laughs> Luring. He said the, the title of the article was "Jesus loves." Oh, what was it? Jesus loves me. This I know because he gave me a Freddo. <laughs> and I mean, but that's the kind of sp- the thing that we're we're involved in the moment is you believe it, but just keep it to yourself, keep it private. Um, and I mean, we just can't do it, can we? We just can't. Um, if we really believe the gospel, like we believe the details of the gospel with all our hearts, I mean, what, what does that look like? If we really believe that this life is temporary, and what I mean by temporary is it, just a blip on the radar of eternity, a drop in the ocean of time, would we spend so much time worrying about the drop and, you know, instead of the ocean that's ahead? 
I mean, it's so easy to get caught up in this world. This, but if we believe, if our faith says this is so small compared to eternity, how is that going to affect our life? If we really believe that this book is the words of the living God to, given to us, precious, precious gift, okay, that faith, how does that work out in my prioritising the reading of it? Um, if I really believe that all humanity need to be reconciled to God because at the moment anyone who has not put their faith and trust in God is under his curse and the the greatest problem of any human being is to be reconciled, to be forgiven of their sin. Well, how's that going to affect the way I spend my weekend nights or my weekends? Um, If I truly believe that although that's the case, Jesus has made a way and he lived the life we couldn't never live and died the death we deserve to die um, and we can be given this free gift, well then how would that really affect our conversations at work? Um, Does the faith match up with our lives? Um, If we really believe that Jesus is actually the only way to be saved, how would that affect the way we think about the nations who have never heard? Um, if we believe that Jesus has given us all a mission, he gave us one mission at the, at the end of his life and said, go and make disciples. If we, well, we have faith that that's true. Um, if we measure our life, are we making disciples? Um, is, is our faith matching up with their works? And so, um, and after all that, you know, if you believed all that and went on to live a life that looked very similar to the rest of the world, I think the world would be right to go, well, there's a disconnect. Um, if we just lived and went to work and come home and watch TV and went to bed and then eat, sleep, repeat, all those sorts of things. And, I mean, and then if we went on in, in habitual sin after we believed all these things, then there's something, there's a disconnect. So let's get into the passage. Um, Paul begins, sorry, Paul, James, James begins um, in verse 14 with a question and he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? So that's the question and it's a massive question and we know it's a massive question because what's put on the line? He says, can that faith save him? It's salvation on the line. So the question is a big question. You know, you know the, the importance of a question by what's at stake, don't you? You know, if you ask me, you say, what are you having for dinner tonight? It doesn't really matter what I answer because there's nothing on the line. You know, there's, no, there's nothing at stake. If you ask me, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Well, there's a bit more on the line. If you ask me, um, well, I'm already married, but if you ask a single person who you're going to marry, there's a lot on the line there. If you ask someone a question that puts the eternal salvation of their souls on the line, well then we, I mean, we're obliged to take really careful note of the question and assess ourselves um, and, and take it very seriously. Because the gravity of the claims of Christianity is really what drives us. Hey, the Christianity makes massive, massive claims, um, exclusive claims. Like if Jesus just said, I am a way, we wouldn't be so stressed, would we, about it? We wouldn't, it wouldn't cause, you know, it wouldn't be such a worry if he just said, I am a way, a truth, a lie. If, if the question here, if he just said, faith and deeds, is such a person inconsistent? We'd be like, yeah, he seems inconsistent. But there's not much at stake. He's just inconsistent. But he says, can that faith save him? Um, and so our attention just goes, oh, 
I, be, I better read on. Um, and so we keep going. Verse 15, he poses a scenario, an illustration. Um, he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? It's hard to tell if this scenario was uh, like it was actually happening or whether this is a hypothetical. It could very well have been happening because we know that they were treating the poor very badly. You would have heard last week that you know the poor person would come into church and they would say, "Well, you go sit over there, or you sit at my feet." And so they're treating the poor very poorly, and um, and and so that, I mean it could have happened, but it's just hard to imagine such crass sort of dismissal with pious meaningless words, isn't it? Be warmed and be filled. Um, I reckon there's a modern equivalent uh, that is, I'll pray for you. <laughs> I have this, I'll pray for you. Um, now that's a good sentiment. We should want to pray for them as this person should want the poor person to be warm and fed. But James is saying if it's just words, it's meaningless. The poor guy is still poorly clothed and hungry. Um, nothing's changed. So you may as well have just stood there and said nothing. Um, uh, and so <laughs> uh, we, we, we cannot stop short of action. That's, that's what he's saying. Um, that is no good to stop at words. Um, that the poor guy won't just jump up and hug him and say, thank you for saying I should get warm. And I should eat. That's very helpful. Thank you. You know, it's, it's, it's sarcastic. It's like, what good is that? Um, and thank God that that's not the way God treated us. Because we were like the poor person in our sin, helpless in that kind of situation. And God didn't stop at words. He, he was a God of action. He came down and he did what we couldn't do. But, and so in the garden, I picture Jesus in the garden and he said, you know, take this cup from me, not my will but yours be done. And he goes and he does it. He didn't stop at words. Um, and we shouldn't stop at words. This gives us a great example of how we are supposed to put our faith into action. And so verse 17 sort of answers the question that was posed in 14. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Um, can it save? No, it cannot save. Faith without works cannot save. It's as ludicrous as telling a person who is naked to just get better, to, to, to get warm. Um, it, it's a joke. It means nothing. It's words. And Jesus calls us to far more than words. Um, isn't that his point in Matthew 25 when he talks about the sheep and the goats, separating the sheep and the goats, you know that famous sort of parable. What basis does Jesus separate the sheep and the goats at that, in that parable? He says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. It doesn't say... I was hungry and you told me to get food. I was thirsty um, and you told me find some water and drink. I was a stranger and you told me to go and make friends. 
I was naked and you told me to go and get warm. I was sick and you told me just to get better. I was in prison and you told me to be good. It just sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? And that is how ridiculous it is to say you have faith but no works. Um, it's a ludicrous notion. Um, and so, I mean, we've got to be careful though, make a distinction that works don't save us. It is faith that saves us. Uh, we're crystal clear on that. Um, and so the presence of works doesn't show that you are a Christian. I mean, there are plenty of people doing amazingly good works in the world but have zero interest in Jesus Christ as their saviour. Um, and so you can have works but no faith, but you cannot have faith but no works. Does that make sense? So it works one way but not the other. So in verse 18 an objection comes along, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. There's a lot of confusion in, in, in commentaries on this passage. Where, where, it, it all, where, where do you put the quotation marks? Because in the Greek they didn't have punctuation, they didn't have quotation marks. So um, interpreters make a decision on where, they, but we'll, we, you can, we can chat about that after. But the point is clear anyway. Don't separate the two. Someone wants to separate it. The objector says faith and works they're separate. They can be diff- they can be you know disconnected. And he's saying no, well you can't do that. Um, and he's going to go and give some responses, some evidence, and some proofs that that is the case. Evidence number one is demons. That's not where you expect. If you're just reading along, you know, whoa, demons. <laughs> I didn't see demons coming. But anyway, he goes to demons. He says, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. I mean, belief in the oneness of God was the mark of Judaism and Christianity. It was separated the Jews from the rest of the pagan world. They had their multiple and many, many gods. And the Jews say, it's not like this is a bad thing. This is a really good thing that you believe that God is one. You do well. But then it's a sarcastic, you do well. Well, good for you. Now you have something in common with demons. Um, it's harsh, isn't it? Like it's quite biting, and these are these are really confronting. Because I mean, the poor Jews are being, you know, they're being um, compared to demons. So it's never a nice thing to be compared to a demon. Um, I've been called a speed demon, but I was in a younger day, and it was, it was still not a nice thing. Um, and the demons, it says, they shudder. Um, shudder. Whereas Pariso, it means shaking in fear, um, great fear. They're extremely afraid and demons are afraid. Demons are an afraid bunch. Why? Because one day they're going to be judged, um, that they will be destroyed. And you see this early on in Jesus' ministry. In Mark one twenty three. it's the demons who really are the most orthodox early on, aren't they? They're the ones who know who Jesus is. They figure out who Jesus is far before the disciples do. Um, the demons say, in Mark one twenty three says, And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, that's a demon, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So the demons recognised who Jesus was and they shudder. Are you come to destroy us now? Um, Okay, so that's evidence number one. Don't be like a demon. Demons believe but they have no works. Evidence number two is the example of Abraham. Um, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that's literally you empty head. 
which I wish they just kept that. <laughs> um, do you want to be shown, you empty head, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, this is where the controversy comes in because you did Romans not long ago. I know you did because I did one of them. And, and um, that sounds very different to what Paul was saying, doesn't it? on the face of it. Paul said you are justified by faith apart from works. What did he just say? You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So we need to do something about that. And I was tossing up how long to spend on this but we'll, do, we'll quickly try to um, reconcile the two because it's, it's, it, the, the problem is really with the use of, they use the word justify in different ways. So we read the same word and think they mean the same thing. They don't mean the same thing. Um, they mean two different things when they say the word works. Um, Paul means something and James means something very different. And so they use the example of Abraham in different ways. So just quickly, Paul, when he says the word justify, he means in a legal sense. Like in Romans, when you looked at it, you would have you know, picked up that Paul, when he says someone is justified, it's in a legal forensic sense, that the not guilty were called guilty. In the law court of heaven, God looked at the guilty sinner. This is the core of the good news, isn't it? This is the essence of the gospel, that he looked at the guilty sinner and said, not guilty, only because of what Jesus had done and Paul makes that case. So that person is now justified, just in the sight of God. Hallelujah. James comes along and he uses the word justify in a different way and he's using it in a more moral sense. So the sense of proof, you justify yourself that what you're saying is true. I mean, so, so, so I, got a, well, I used to have a mate, well, well we still, mate, I haven't seen him in a long time, um, and he wanted to play basketball with us, I was a sheet metal worker um, and there's this guy and we're starting a basketball team on Monday nights and he wanted to join the basketball team and I mean it's probably generous to say he was about this high right and so I had my doubts <laughs> but I was keen to have him involved and you know and, and join us to play basketball and he, he started to talk himself up like because he wanted to be on the team and he said that he used to in his before he did his knee of course yeah. he, <laughs> he used to be able to reverse dunk with two hands and I was like, well, cool, man. I'm, I'm sceptical, but I didn't say that, but okay. And he said, I used to average 25 points a game when I used to play just in the social league. And I was like, wow, that's, that's impressive. You can be on our team. And so I went to my other mates. I said, dudes, we have a player, you know, and he is going to come and play and then we're going to win championships or whatever. Um, anyway, uh, you know, I had my doubts. It turns out, so you mean... He joined the team, he bought a new uniform, 80 bucks, he spent all this money. But I was waiting for the moment where he might say, I'm actually, I can't, I never could dunk in the ball. Um, anyway, he turns up to the basketball game, we have our first game. <laughs> he only lasted one game. <laughs> and it turns out he could barely bounce the ball. And so like, I'm sitting there going, when was the gig up? Like, when was he going to say, 
I was just joking about that whole dunking and scoring 25 points. But he never actually came clean until he was on the court, could barely bounce it. And he had this weird shot. I won't demonstrate, but he sort of, say the hoops that way. He would jump this way, turn around in the air and throw it like that. It came nowhere near the backboard. (laughs) And so we were all in shock watching him, um, this ex-superstar. So I I suppose the knee, the knee had caused a lot of problems. And... um, Anyway, so this was, his pro- this was his chance, right? In James' sense of justify, this was his chance to justify his claims that he was an A-grade superstar basketball player. I mean, he didn't do that. Um, faith and deeds were <laughs> very separate. But that's, that's James' sense. So it's not that legal sense of in the law court justify, but justify yourself that what you're saying is true. Um, so that's the two uses. They also have two different ways of talking about works. Paul, when he uses the word works, it's always negative, isn't it? Um, and that's because when he says works, he's talking about someone trying to earn salvation. And so he'll go, apart from works, your works are dead. Your works don't, you don't need your works because you are justified by faith. And so don't work to achieve salvation. James is not using works in that sense. James is using works in the sense of an overflow from faith, the the proof, the justification that your faith is true. And so that's why it looks different. It it seems contradictory, but it's actually, they just fit perfectly fine. Um, And so when they come to the story of Abraham, Paul used Abraham in a different way. Paul, in Genesis 15, 6, he looks at that and he says that God considered Abraham righteous um, by faith alone apart from works. And that's because Abraham believed the promise that God gave him that he was going to have a son even though Abraham and Sarah, his wife, were beyond the age of childbearing is. Um, he, He believed that and God credited to him as righteousness, said, you are righteous now, you are just justified. And that's before Abraham had done anything. He hadn't been circumcised, that's a couple of chapters later. So that's the point Paul makes. James goes to a different story of um, Abraham's and says, you know, when Abraham was, was told to offer, uh, offer Isaac up on the, um, on the altar, you, you know the story? I'm assuming we know the story. <laughs> so, um, God, um, it's a test. God says he's going to test you. Um, he tests his faith to see if his faith is true. Will you offer your son as a sacrifice? And now that's a big test because... Um, you know, this was the promised son that he believed God would give. And so God has given the son and now God's saying, now give it back to me. Um, and of course, God, God didn't, he didn't sacrifice the son in the end, but God was testing his faith. And so he was justified in James's sense of the word justified, saying he proved that he really did have faith. He put it into action. Okay? So that's, that's our bit on that. Um, so James... He still puts the primary focus on faith. Faith is most important. James still does that because um, he says in, in, um, in verse 22 of ours that faith is completed, is fulfilled by works. That Faith is the original thing and then works flow from it. Back in 121 um, in James, he says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So what saves our souls? The implanted word. Um, the implanted word that God gives us. Now what happens to a word that's planted? What happens to a plant when it's planted? It grows. It has fruit. 
So that's what James is saying. God has given you the implanted word, that is faith, which saved you, but we need some fruit from the plant. We need some growth. Um, so that's the point. Um, and Paul would absolutely agree with this, wouldn't he? Paul, in a few places, says, so Galatians 5, 6, you know, this is the faith and works flow on. Um, Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith working itself out through love. Faith must work itself out. Um, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, this is Paul again. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Every good work. That's what faith is about. Abounding in every good work. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. This is a really famous passage, isn't it? For by grace you have been saved through faith. Um, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. That sounds very Paul-like, doesn't it? Grace, no works. And then he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The two fit perfectly together um, and they should in our lives as well. Um, Evidence number three, verse 25, is Rahab. And we won't go into it, but Rahab showed that she had true faith. She was just by the sense that she backed up her faith with actions when she helped the spies of Israel. Um, In verse 26, you see the example of body and spirit. You can't separate the body from the spirit, Paul is saying. This is a great example. So you can't separate your faith from your works. Same as if you took the spirit from the body, the body would be dead, wouldn't it? Same with faith without works. You take your works out of your faith, your faith is dead. Um, so, I mean, that's the passage. And there is a, a powerful, powerful, undeniable logic to it, isn't there? Uh, but it is a confronting logic which makes us ask ourselves, do I truly, truly believe? Because it's not just behaviour that I need to modify If I'm not behaving like a Christian, I need to go right back to the start and go, do I really, really believe this stuff? Do I truly believe the gospel? Um, And then let that work itself out. Um, uh, The same Jesus who offers salvation purely based on grace also said, take up your cross and follow me. Um, Anyone who does not deny himself is not worthy to be called my disciple. Um, and so we have to ask ourselves, what do our works say about our faith? Does it say that the gospel, because there's levels, you know, does our works say that the gospel is, it's important, but you know, it's give or take. Does our lives say, does, it, does our life preach resoundingly that the gospel is the most important reality in all the universe? That's the question it's asking us. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, do you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German. He was a martyr um, in, under Nazi rule. I think he was he was killed just a, not long before the the war ended. But he was a phenomenal theologian before that, and he wrote a classic book called The Cost of Discipleship. And I just want to read a quote from it, and we'll finish with this. Um, he's talking about cheap grace that Christians sometimes. In, what he was dealing with is that they just take grace for granted. It's cheap. And he writes this, he says, Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. 
Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap Jack's wares. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. He says, costly grace on the other hand. He makes a case for costly grace. This is great. He says this, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price, which to buy, the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ, at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. It is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and it is grace because it justifies the sinner. And above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the man or woman, to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. But it is grace because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Um, cheap grace, I think, is, is rampant, even in our churches today. Um, and amongst my age group um, and younger, that cheap grace, take it for granted. Grace is not like that. Um, I like his way of saying costly grace. Um, So we'll finish there. Uh, Let me pray. Father, you call us to such a, a life that is um, well, in a sense radical, but in another sense logical, it makes sense. If this life is just so small, it makes sense that we would live for eternity um, and we would prioritise our lives around the time that will last forever and ever. Um, Lord, help us to live like that, that we would live lives that can't be explained apart from the gospel. And we need your help for that because we are fallen and prone to wonder and prone to be distracted by the idols of this world, um, inferior idols. And so, Lord, we repent and we say again, we are so sorry for our sin, um, for putting things above you, our almighty God who loves us and died for us. And so, again, we want to renew our... Uh, as a church to renew our endeavours to to match up our faith with our works. Lord, convict us of where we are wrong and where we don't, where there is a disconnect. Uh, For your sake and for your glory, we pray. Amen.